0: You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. First, I'm going to update something we talked about on the last episode, the iPredict study. An astute hematology oncology fellow at Seattle, Fred Hutch, has found me the poster presentation of iPredict in treatment-naive patients. You won't want to miss this discussion. Next, I'm going to talk about a piece of correspondence that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine on May 9th. It's called The Imputability of Adverse Events to Anti-Cancer Drugs. Like a prior letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine on Phase 1 trials about the response rate in the published literature on Phase 1 trials, this too is deeply flawed. And just as I raked that first paper over the coals, I'm going to rake this one over the coals. And you won't want to miss this discussion of another piece of bad research. It's just as simple as that. And you'll want to know why it's bad so that hopefully you won't make the error in the future. Finally, I'm going to have an interview with Dr. Daniel Hartung. Daniel Hartung works in the School of Pharmacy here, and he is an expert on the cost of drugs. I didn't say cancer drugs. I just said drugs, because he's an expert on the cost of all drugs. He's going to talk about two things that he's done. One, the ACTHAR gel, and two, multiple sclerosis drugs. And you won't want to miss his insights. So, stay tuned but first a plug if you like this episode and you like this podcast i need you to do three things one go to patreon.com and back this podcast backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going next go to the itunes store and don't just give us five stars write a review tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like a written review goes a long way third recommend plenary session to a friend If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. So first up, I predict in treatment-naive patients, this was brought to my attention by Dr. Ali Kaki, who is a fellow in hematology-oncology at Fred Hutch. In the last episode of Planet Session, I took apart three recent trials that appeared in Nature Medicine – These trials tried to scale up molecular profiling and paired targeted therapy from the roughly 9% of U.S. cancer patients eligible for such FDA-approved therapies to the 99% of all cancer patients out there. Now, this large gap between the number of patients who currently benefit from FDA-approved genomic drugs and the number of patients out there is the gap that many investigators have tried to cross. And the easiest way to cross such a huge gap is to lower the standards by which you declare success, and in fact, that's what we saw with those prior papers, and that's what our discussion focused on there. Dr. Kaki has added to this discussion because he found me the poster of the iPredict study. This is a study with many, many authors, and it is dated, updated May 2017. It says something like the following background. With increasing availability of large gene assays and cognate agents. We high oh, it's a cognate agent. That's actually that's actually quite interesting because it's simply an agent that someone has chosen to apply for that gene alteration but it's a lot better sounding if it's a cognate agent. It's the cognate. Um, we hypothesized that offering customized combination therapies to treatment naïve tumors would be feasible and improve response rates. Ah, improve response rates. Now, to improve a response rate, one usually requires a contemporary control arm to ascertain what the response rate would be in the absence of said improvement. It's hard to improve upon something when you don't document what that something is. Now, here, the authors include 61 treatment-naive metastatic cancer patients. They write the following. 30 of those patients have been treated with therapies, but 21 could not be treated, quote, mainly due to patient deterioration or insurance denial, end quote. So, thus, a clue is provided in this abstract that the funding source of this research investigation are Healthcare insurers, uh, because that is a problematic funding source for research. See, it's important that research is funded by research payers, under the guise of research, and that insurance, which is something that all of us, as people who pay federal income taxes, people who pay taxes, people who participate in society, we all fund healthcare, because we believe that healthcare or access to treatments that improve outcomes is something that we all need to pitch in for. But Research, which may or may not lead to success, which almost certainly, if successful, will lead to a windfall profit for some company, that in this society is typically paid for by venture capitalists, by research agencies, by research funding. When you blur the two, you enter into, I think, a problematic situation where all of our health insurance premiums goes up, our out-of-pocket costs may go up for particular patients that may be a great deal of distress and financial toxicity, and the social contract may be jeopardized if that's for research rather than therapies or things that we agree are part of the canon of medical practices. So with that in mind, what do they find? Well, I can tell you they sequenced people and they found mutations. And they pair those people with cognate agents. They're not just any agents out there that may or may not have affinity for the target. They are cognates. As we all know, these two go hand in hand. They're inextricably linked. For instance, when I say PTCH1 mutation, you think Vismodegib. Of course you think Vismodegib. Come on, people. Okay, when I say CDKN2A, you think Palbo. Okay, that's easy. Even I thought that. Uh, When I say... IGF-1R mutations, you think? You think seritinib, come on, even though it has a, in parentheses, note, low IC50 for IGF-1R. Okay, let me give you another one. Let's just attest so that you know your cognates out there. Okay, when I say TP53, okay, what do you think? You think lenvatinib, Bevisism bevacizumab? Come on, people, you must think that, because that's something I didn't think at all. How about this one, when I think BAP1, when I think BAP1, come on, I, I, in my mind I'm thinking about some good research in mesothelioma, but they're thinking of oxaliplatin. We can play this game all day, but these are the cognates, the bread and butter cognates of medicine that every oncologist surely knows. BAP1, oxaliplatin, KRAS, trimetinib, okay, even I knew that one, but PTCH1, And vismodegib, I didn't know that one. And TP53 and Pfefacizumab, I certainly didn't know that one. And you're going to take a lot of education to teach me that one, I can imagine. But anyway, these are the cognate therapies. So we sequence people, we find matches, we give them the cognates, and lo and behold, of the 61 people who enrolled on this study, we have a total of six CRs and PRs. How many of those are CRs? And how many of those are PRs? Well, that's not given, because... That would be crazy talk to ask somebody to actually separate those two. But they are not given. So we roughly have a 10% response rate. Among those who are matched, this is being quoted as a 33% response rate. So is that the improved response rate that we set out to find? Well, it's a good question. Who knows? Because these tumor types, breast, CNS, endocrine, gastrointestinal, urinary, gynecological, head and neck, lung, melanoma, and non-melanoma, we don't know what the counterfactual would be if they were treated with frontline agents based on prevailing standards of care. And that's why you need randomization, you need randomized randomize control trials to answer these kinds of questions, which is, is this strategy better than what we would otherwise do based on histopathology? And that's why uncontrolled studies don't really fill that void. But I can say that... I would say that that response rate is a bit lower than what you might hope for, a 10% response rate in untreated malignancies, and that is actually kind of close to what I guessed it would be in the last podcast, where I said it would be about double the 4% it was in the relapse refractory setting. It would be about double, and in fact, it is about double, but it's probably inferior to what you would get if you prescribe prevailing standard of care therapies, which is probably largely cytotoxic with some, perhaps, targeted therapy. Um... And that's just as simple as it gets. It's a, I don't know what it's called, but I would call this a negative or sobering result and something that should make one return back to the drawing board and rethink things. I also think that if I say PTCH1 and you're not thinking vismodegib, it might not be fair to call that a cognate, but you know, different people think different things. So what's the takeaway from I predict frontline study? I think it's a takeaway, a lesson that should be true across all oncology, which is that Fail, failing to achieve primary endpoints in relapse refractory settings should not, does not, and cannot mean you are entitled to move into frontline settings. Succeeding in improving endpoints in relapse refractory settings should mean. You can ask the question whether or not the routine upfront administration of said agents is preferable to the now current standard of care, which is use in the relapse, refractory, or salvage setting. You see, succeeding in the last line, that is cause to test upfront treatment against last line treatment because now you've succeeded. Ergo, it's the current standard of care or ought to be and probably is in most Western industrialized rich nations, but may not be in the nations you choose to run your clinical trial. Um, however, uh, failing to achieve the primary endpoint, as several of those studies failed to meet the modest von Hoff ratio that was set forth, should not, cannot, and does not mean you should move to the frontline setting. Certainly not in the frontline setting when there is no contemporary control group and by which you can judge your results. So those are just my thoughts on the I predict poster that Ali Khaki has sent me. Imputability of adverse events to anti-cancer drugs. Oh, this one is a doozy. It's quite a doozy. Now, many listeners may have forgotten that uh, a while back, maybe about a year ago, there was a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. It said that if you look historically at a systematic sampling of phase one clinical trials that are run, you find, say, a 5 6 7% response rate across phase one clinical trials. Because, of course, phase one clinical trials are primarily run with the goal of identifying or trying to identify the MTD. They're not done typically with a goal of meeting some pre-specified response rate criteria. Yet, nonetheless, over time, some phase one trials, highly active agents are used, and you happen to have a lot of responses. There's no better example of that than Drucker, New England Journal of Medicine, 2001, the efficacy of a specific BCR-ABLE inhibitor. I'm kind of paraphrasing that title. I forget it exactly. It was a phase one trial of Gleevec, and it had a 98% complete hematologic response rate, which is quite, quite good. And that is really setting the bar for the parachute practices when you're getting 98% CRs in your phase one. That's, that's now you're talking parachute level interventions. We're going to revisit that subject in a few short weeks. So then fast forward about a year ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, they did a retrospective analysis of published phase one studies in oncology. And they said, lo and behold, the response rate, it's up from 6% of systematic samples to 20%. It's much, much higher because when you look in modern drugs, which are so good, they're all miracles, revolutions, game changers, and cures, as many listeners may know, that's how they're branded. You will have a very high response rate. This prompted former FDA commissioner Bob Califf to say... Am I missing something? Quote, pun intended, end quote. Um, actually, I'm paraphrasing that too. I can't read It was something like that. It was very cleverly worded. And his point was, of course, phase one clinical studies suffer from massive publication bias. And the phase one trials in oncology that are published and that you're finding likely are more likely to report response rates, robust responses than the unpublished phase one clinical trials. And the historical studies you're comparing them against to, those looked at systematic samplings, like say, for instance, every NCI NCI CTEP-sponsored study that was run, as the study by um, Chris Grady and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at. So you can't really compare systematic samplings, which is the right way, of course, obviously the right way to study the question, against published literature findings, which is, of course, a skewed cross-section of just likely the most promising phase one results. Comparing those two is a fundamentally flawed strategy. And yet, that's what happened in the New England Journal of Medicine letter that has probably been cited a lot of times. Well, there's another letter out there. It's called the imputability of adverse events to anti-cancer drugs. And just like the other letter on phase one trials, this one is deeply flawed. So what do you need to know? When doctors run clinical trials of anti-cancer agents, particularly non-randomized clinical trials, and a patient takes a drug, something may happen to that patient after taking the drug. They may take the drug, and then a few days later, they may develop hip pain. And a CT scan performed of the hip may show uh, a cancerous lesion at the site of the pain. And the investigator who has prescribed the drug may have to make a decision. Is this hip pain? Is this nausea? Is this vomiting? Is this generalized pain? Is this neuropathy? Due to the treatment I prescribe the patient, or is it due to the underlying disease or some other reason? So they have to decide to what should they ascribe that adverse event. Okay, this is the attribution of adverse events. Of course, in a non-randomized study, it seems like it's quite logical that one would need to do this because um, it's so easy that your trial could be halted, but you wouldn't want it to be halted for adverse events due from the disease itself. You'd really want to be looking for what what does the interventional agent do, and it requires judgment. Now, of course, you may already see the problems here this is not an objective science this is a subjective science requires decision making of course the person who's imputing these adverse events to the drug the person may not be an impartial observer they may be very vested in the success of that drug if anything i suspect they are likely to undercall the relationship between the drug and the adverse event Nevertheless, these authors point out that in phase one clinical trials, if you talk about grade three to five AEs, something like you know 20% or 30% of patients can have severe AEs and that these are ascribed to the drug. Okay, so that's what they find. Their argument in this letter is that, is that really due to the drug? Question mark. They want to answer that question. And how they answer it is... They look at randomized control trials of anti-cancer drugs, where one group gets placebo and one group gets the active agent. Here, too, patients are monitored for toxicity. And here, too, there is the investigator ascribing the side effect to the drug. Do you think this side effect is caused by the drug or not? And here, too, requires the judgment. And what the authors find here is that here, too, in the treatment arms of randomized studies, the grade 3 to 5 AE rate is roughly 20% consistent with, I think, the early phase clinical trial AE rate. But what they find provocative is that the grade 325 AE rate on placebo arms is 5.6%. Now, of course, a placebo can't really cause an AE, ergo, 5.6% of the 20% of the interventional harm, that is misattributed. That's adverse events being attributed to cancer drugs that probably aren't due to the cancer drugs. So if anything, the adverse event rate of cancer drugs is like 15% for grade 3 to 5 AEs, lower than what you think. And if anything, we probably could get away with pushing the dose in phase one. Or at least, this is the argument they're trying to flesh out. Now, I said on Twitter... That this is grievously flawed. I will go further now and say it's a grotesquely flawed study and here's why. When you perform a non-randomized cancer drug study, you do need the physician to assess causality because you so easily could see AEs that are due to the disease and and there's no other way around it, frankly. When you do a randomized study, we still use physician-assessed causality to determine AEs, but you don't have to. In fact, you could just collect all grade three to five AEs, irrespective of whether or not the doctor thinks it's due to the drug or not. And then, if you did it that way, you could subtract as these authors propose. And then you'd find out what's due to the intervention and what's due to the placebo. But if you've already built in the attribution to this, you can't subtract. In fact, if anything, The AEs being called on both arms are notoriously underreported as attributed to the drug because of the biases that exist among human beings running research, that they want these things to succeed. They are quick to look for alternative reasons. And those of us who've actually systematically sampled AE forms, we often find ourselves shocked to see that some things are not being coded as drug-related AEs when they probably are drug-related AEs if you start subtracting at this stage, you haven't really circumvented the problem. You've just built the problem into your analysis. If they really want to do this legitimately, they would collect all AEs, irrespective of what the investigator believes, subtract the two, then collect all the AEs and start asking investigators what they think is due to the drug or not. And if the investigators aren't calling the actual difference in just raw number AEs, that suggests there's underreporting going on. But, the bottom line here is simple. You cannot go to randomized trials where investigators have already decided whether or not AEs are attributable to the drug and therefore reporting AEs as attributable to the drug per the investigator and then subtract out the placebo response, AEs. That doesn't make sense. It's not the right way to do it. Of course, I think the author's analysis here is self-serving because researchers who perform clinical trials tend to seek to want to mitigate or downplay the harms of treatment that's been shown in a large swath of publications and here wouldn't it be nice if 25 percent of aes that are attributed to the drug are not actually attributable to the drug but the reality is you've already built in an attribution at the physician level and the truth is it could be a heck of a lot higher who knows and the real truth about the ae rate in the general population could be A whole heck of a lot higher because actual cancer patients tend to be older and frailer than patients enrolled on clinical studies so I think there's a number of things wrong here so putting these two letters together what do we see we see the New England Journal of Medicine is likely overestimating the response rate in phase 1 trials by only looking at the published literature here that New England Journal of Medicine is likely downplaying the toxicity of anti-cancer drugs by only looking at events that are causally attributed by investigators and then subtracting out some events from that. So you see a journal that's upselling the efficacy and downselling the harm, which it seems to me that kind of transaction is exactly what one needs to get the reprints out the door. Am I right? Well, on that positive note, let's turn to our interview with Dr. Daniel Hartung. You won't want to miss Dr. Daniel Hartung taking us through some important information on cost of drugs, including a gel called Acthar that costs a fortune and has a handful of doctors who prescribe it a whole heck of a lot. And it just so happens that many, many of those prescribers are paid a lot of money by the manufacturing company. You won't want to miss this discussion. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dan Hartung. Dr. Hartung is an Associate Professor of Medicine here at the OSU School of Pharmacy. He is a researcher doing very interesting work at the intersection of cost, utilization, and prescription drugs. Um, Let me give you a little bit of background about Dr. Hartung. Dr. Hartung did his undergraduate and PharmD at the University of Wisconsin. He then came out here to Portland, Oregon, where he did his MPH here at OHSU. And from that, he transitioned on to faculty a few years ago. Is that fair to say, Dr. Hartung?
1: Yeah, I think I I joined the faculty in about 2007. 2007, so just over a decade. Yeah, but I've been in Oregon since uh, the year 2000.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Almost 20 years then. Yeah, I know. Well, um, and you're, you're now in the School of Pharmacy where you do research that we're going to talk about today on the podcast. But first, let me thank you for coming here and joining us on the plenary session stage.
1: Great. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here and talk with you.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. And this is, um, it's, so, it's named the plenary session because we try to, to capture the same importance of any plenary session meeting at a national meeting. We try to get the, the same gravitas and importance. It's, it, it's as if you're speaking to 30,000 people out there just just hanging on your every word
1: (laughs) well that will be a first for me then
0: (laughs) well so where did I want to jump in I guess um maybe let's give listeners a little bit more into your background I guess um right now we were talking a little bit before um but you divide your time I think predominantly between research and teaching um I think a couple
1: years ago I came to your class and what's the title of the course it's uh it's an evidence-based medicine course for pharmacists. It's called Decision Analysis and Evidence Synthesis, and we kind of cover a variety of topics related to help pharmacists understand the medical literature, reading about re- clinical trials, kind of advanced topics in clinical trials like equivalence, non-inferiority, designs. Uh, we talk about systematic reviews, meta-analysis. Um, and all of the ways these are gamed. Exactly, exactly, and kind of things to think about when you're reading those types of, those types of literature for our pharmacy students. And then we we cover some other things about like, specifically about decision analysis and economic studies and things like that. Markov models and things like that. Exactly, exactly. So stuff that, you know, the typical, the pharmacist wouldn't get exposed to, but we want to expose them to it so they know it when they see it in in the literature.
0: Yeah, that's sophisticated stuff. But let me ask you that your class is uh, students who are pursuing a degree in pharmacy.
1: Correct. They're in our professional program. They're all going to be pharmacists in the next year and a half.
0: That's good. That's a good group of people who needs to be equipped um, to suss out uh, what's a good non-inferiority trial from uh, what I would hate to say is a typical non-inferiority trial, something with a margin so big you could park a school bus in it. Those kind of non-inferiority trials where, you know, really almost any product would be deemed non-inferior because the margin is so large. I hate those. Right. And I also hate non inferiority trials when the new drug is more costly, uh, more toxic, and, and no less easy to give. Uh, it's just as hard to give. So it has no advantage over the parent drug, making one wonder why they use that trial design in the first place. Do you enjoy teaching this course?
1: Yeah, I, I do. I kind of, I I was telling you earlier, I, I don't, I'm a pharmacist, I'm still licensed, but I, I don't practice pharmacy anymore, and I haven't for... A good 15 or 16 years, so it at least keeps me one foot in kind of the professional world, and um, being around young per- people perpetually kind of makes me feel younger. so <laughs> for those reasons I enjoy I enjoy, um, enjoy teaching.-huh
0: and um, it's a good group here, I think, because we've had a number of the graduates of the program come through you know the oncology fellowship um, they do a little was a residency in oncology and oncology pharmacy.
1: Correct. There's probably several different types of residencies uh, for pharmacists at OHSU here. And uh, yeah, I'm sure that with all the explosion in in uh, oncology, uh, infrastructure here, um, that that is one other piece that has been added.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me ask you about some of these papers you've been publishing recently, which um, you know, to your credit have been getting uh, I think pretty good coverage and pr- a lot of interest. Uh, one paper that I had forwarded to me by several people, and which I had the pleasure to read uh, a while back when it came out, I think it was la- last summer, uh, was sort of your look at who is prescribing a drug called corticotropin, um, and not just any corticotropin, uh, depot or repository corticotropin, like long acting corticotropin. And and whether or not those physicians happen to be receiving payments from this one particular company that makes this one particular product. Is that fair to say you've taken a look at this topic?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this work kind of um, arose out of my other work in the, related to multiple sclerosis and drugs for multiple sclerosis. So adrenocorticotropin hormone, repository adrenocorticotropin hormone or Acthar is the brand name. Mm-hmm. is indicated um, for relapses of, of MS, and that's um, the approved indication. That's an approved. It has about twenty or so approved indications. It was approved by the FDA in mm-hmm. the fifties under kind of the old rules before the kefauver Harris Amendment, mm-hmm. where basically manufacturers had to provide evidence of efficacy, two controlled trials of efficacy. So this was approved prior to that. Mm -hmm. And so it has maybe about 20 different indications. I see. Um, And uh, it's it's grown in notoriety due to uh, a variety of investigations uh, by like the New York Times and ProPublica over the last decade, which documented um, how basically uh, a company – uh, in the last ten years, um, QuestCore, at the time, purchased the rights to it and obtained an orphan drug indication uh, for it uh, for infantile spasms and jacked up the price from about a uh, hundred dollars per vial to, uh, at the time, I think it was like seventeen thousand dollars per vial, and it's really kind of continued escalating on a you know the usual yearly price increases from that until I think the most recent list price that we've seen on it was about $36,000 per per 5 cc vial.
0: $36,000 and it started at $100.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: this is the the perhaps the greatest price increase that I'm aware of of any long-standing product. It puts Martin Scarelli to shame, doesn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean I I I think so. It's
0: uh because Corelli got it at $13 a pill and he took it up to 750 right but this is 100 to 36,000 so yeah, I mean, 3,600 times right price increase yeah, wow that's pretty
1: notable yeah. Um, yeah so i think that the the company i mean it, the company's been bought over by uh, most recently by Mallinckrodt so they currently own the rights to manufacture it mm-hmm. um, and it is this it's not a biologic drug Mm-mm. it's not it's not
0: Know, synthesized. Yeah.
1: It's not small molecule, but it's not synthesized in the kind of biologic system. It's it's just ground up pig pituitary purified, glan, yeah, purified ground mm-hmm. up pig pituitary glands uh, to hmm. to purify the uh, corticotropin hormone. Mm-hmm. So it has this ultra secret kind of recipe that um, hmm. it is you know impossible to copy, and so they essentially have this monopoly on it. Um, they saw the fact that it had 20 FDA indications. Uh, I think saw the opportunity to purchase it and really start marketing the heck out of it. For uh, some of the indications are pretty prevalent in, in this country, such as uh, you know a variety of different rheumatologic conditions, lupus. I see yeah.
0: proteinuria, nephrotic syndrome, dermatomyositis, polymyositis. But the but one of the problems here is that even though it has approvals from the glory days of the FDA, where we didn't put any restrictions on innovation in uh, the glory days prior mm-hmm. to sixty four um, or sixty two, sorry, a key for Harris so is sixty two. Um, the evidence is absent. I mean, it's it it, it, it menta- when it's been tested, it's been tested against placebo, and often it didn't even beat placebo. Is that fair to say?
1: Um in the placebo controlled trials it generally you know it has an effect i mean it definitely stimulates cortisol secretion but in the in the a lot of the well there's only a handful of controlled clinical trials in ms there's actually uh, one to two clinical trials and one against methylprednisolone for mm-hmm. relapses and it doesn't outperform me- methylprednisolone which is cheap and easily available yeah, yeah. and it's easier to dose too yeah. uh, and so there's a lot of concerns about the safety of this drug because it's kind of you're one step removed from actually um uh, you know, just giving, you know, meth prednisolone or prednisone, essentially. So there's some dosing ambiguity in how you actually give it. And so. Um,
0: so in many of these indications, there's no control trials,
1: period. Correct.
0: Yeah. They're just okay. like
1: the evidence is like, you know, we treated uh, six people, 10 with... patients, mm-hmm. and he, they all got better. Um, and so we, it's that, astounding. That, that
0: level of evidence should be reserved for plenary sessions in oncology. That's not really meant for common condition. No, but we do a fair bit of these uh, historically controlled things in, I, in my line of work. Right, but but um, but I'm just kidding with you. Um, but uh, I think that's poor level of evidence, uh, uncontrolled studies, particularly of conditions that are relapsing remitting, uh, where where the natural history often is to get better. Correct. Um, and then the other thing that's, I mean, worth pointing out is that when they do the controlled studies, they're not always measuring uh, like very important clinical outcomes for the patients. They're measuring short-term surrogate outcomes. Is that not the case?
1: Correct. I mean, the controlled studies in the in this. For this drug, are very uh, sparse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually on my list of things to do to do a very comprehensive systematic review of the because there's only there's only a hand, like one or two reviews in the literature of this drug, mm-hmm. and they're essentially um, they they were written by the company. Um, so you know this has been on my to do list of things that I would like to do is just do a comprehensive review of the evidence. So we we recently published. Um, another paper that, so this goes back a couple years ago when we first documented just the amount of money that the Medicare program was spending on this drug. Yeah. Um, I think in like a five-year period, they spent um, over like over like a billion dollars. A billion uh, dollars yeah. on corticotropin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we got a, a letter from the manufacturer basically kind of, Stating that that corticosteroid has a place in in therapy for some patients, and um, we're using the revenue from this drug to conduct more clinical trials, so we can fill in the evidence that doesn't exist. I see,
0: that's right. So mm.
1: you know, we found that was an odd way to respond, and that you know that sh- that should not be the business model for bringing drugs to market. Is like just charge an absurd amount of money to fund the research to show that the drug is effective. <laughs> so that's like the reverse, uh, reverse model. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah of and, course, and,
0: because we want to know that it works before we pay billions of dollars <laughs> right, for it. Right, yeah. right,
1: and so um, my other colleague, uh, David Cohn is a nephrologist. You know, he he, uh, he and I just published a paper along with um, a couple other people who I've been working with um, to document what their actual clinical trial pipeline was for this drug, to oh, basically right.
0: to prove that they're not using yeah, it. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, and yep, it's yep. just
1: more the same. It's more these like small, you know, uncontrolled studies that are like there's just two dosing arms of Acthar. If there's if there's even right, a if con- there's
0: a randomization, it's to two different ways of giving the same medication. C-
1: correct. Uh-huh. Correct. Yeah, so I see that. Yeah. There's no. Um, True imminent, control, yeah, imminent mm-hmm. evidence that's going to come out that's really going to move the needle uh, forward for this drug. Um,
0: so these are seeding trials. I mean trials that give the illusion of generating knowledge, but really seek just to advance market share.
1: Correct. They're, you know they're 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 teaching people how to how to use this drug and uh, kind of getting more people used to prescribing it. I see. And
0: and so in your paper though, you looked at the people who were prescribing this drug. Now, um, the people, the providers who are giving this drug, they're not random providers giving, you know, one prescription here, one prescription there. There are a few people who really like this medication. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so we looked at, um, we basically linked uh, Medicare Part D uh, prescriber-level data, which are publicly available. We'll, or anyone who writes more than... 10 prescriptions for any particular drug. Um, that data goes into the Medicare Part D public data files. And we link that data with um, the open uh, open payments database, mm-hmm. essentially, to look at, you know, what proportion of individuals who prescribe this drug are receiving any sort of payments from the manufacturer. And that's mm-hmm. been done to a certain extent by ProPublica. You know, I, I need to get yeah exactly but they kind of just looked at it almost on a case-by-case basis basis looking at the top uh, you know the top prescribers of this drug and so we wanted to get an overall sense of overall um you know what proportion of prescribers are are, are doing this and so we found a very high proportion of prescribers who are using this drug um, getting payments from the company I think close to 90 percent 88 or 90 89 percent um which is very high. Like other studies that have looked at this type of these types of conflicts of interest between drug prescribing and uh-huh. uh, and, and behavior. And, yeah. And and payments. Um, you know, it's it's a lower, I mean, they they find the link and they find that there is, you know, an association between getting paid and prescribing the drug, but the prevalence is not as high as as what we found. So,
0: yeah. So I guess the first thing that jumps out at me about your paper is Medicare spent $504 million on 11,000 corticotropin prescriptions written by 1700 doctors. That's just, you know, just shows you the price of this medicine is astronomical right. when ten thousand people are running up half a billion dollar tab. Right. More than half this expenditure, or a quarter of a billion dollars, was attributable to three hundred people with more than ten prescriptions. And so so it is kind of very skewed towards mm-hmm. a few people who prescribe this. Um Unusual, you know, pre-era of evidence medicine. Um, and what you're saying is that among all the people who are prescribing it, eighty plus percent of them are getting money from the manufacturer. Correct. Correct. And and among the people not prescribing it, it's fair to say like less than one percent of, or less than half of one percent. Correct. Correct. Or zero yeah. percent, really, because it's pretty much they are only giving money to people prescribing this drug. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct.
1: Um, yeah, so in that paper we, you know, we we just summarized descriptively kind of what proportion are getting money and then we looked at does the amount of money that they're getting associate with the volume of prescriptions that they're writing and the cost of those prescriptions and we, we did find a, essentially a dose-response relationship between dollars spent by the company and, and volume of prescriptions. Um, and kind of just made the case that of the total, you know, the total amount of money that they're spending, you know, the return on investment yeah. for them is 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 very high. I can't recall. I think it was like twelve, twelve to one, or something like that. Twelve
0: to one. I see here in this table, it's like ranges between like two hundred dollars prescribed per prescription up to like six hundred dollars prescribed per prescription. But a prescription is for, you know, this medicine that costs thirty six thousand dollars per vial. Uh, so the ratio must be five to one.
1: Right, five to one. Okay. Yeah. So what we sh- what we found is that um, Medicare expenditures on this drug increased by about eight percent for every ten thousand dollars increase in payments that they made to these prescribers. So there was a you know a good return on investment for those payments in terms of Medicare. I mean, this is just Medicare. So
0: yeah, <clears throat> who knows about. Commercial payers and 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 Medicaid. I guess what also strikes me about this is, you know, and I may someday be able to show you a figure even higher than this 80% that you're finding because I'll tell you why that this is like a tough thing to study. You know, when we look if uh, payments from particular companies affect provider behavior, one of the challenges we face is that some companies that may be providing many payments to physicians make many, many products. And, um, and physicians who don't receive payments, you know, and, and, and that kind of, I don't know, makes it a muddy analysis because you don't know if this is sort of trying to influence the behavior of any one product or another product. But there are a few companies like this company um, that really are deriving substantive revenue from like one or two products. And in those cases, somebody could do an analysis like this to see what is the link. And the links tend to be really, really strong.
1: Right, and actually open payments is a nice data set in that it actually, they're manufacturers are required to report the actual product that the payment was yeah, un- was tagged for, yeah. essentially. So I see. you can get to that level of granularity about, you know, was this, you know, Mallinckrodt does make some other more oddball products that we had to pull out, but. Oh, um, you
0: pulled those out. So you did yeah. prove that these are payments for corticotropin. Yes, I they see. are. I see. So you've, you really solidified that link. And I mean, this is, this is the business
1: model then. For this particular drug, I mean, this there's been a lot of uh, kind of legal machinations with this product as well. So I think the the New York attorneys General um, they settled a lawsuit with them about the fact that Malincrot purchased uh, essentially the patent rights for what would be a competitor for their for this product essentially to, to kill maintain it. their yeah maintain their monopoly of of this particular product. Um, And so they were – the attorney general in New York went after them for um, kind of anti-competitive behavior, Mm -hmm. um, and they settled um, for that. So for like a you know a hundred million dollars or something like that so you know
0: uh, yeah so uh, the price of doing business in exactly. other words so a penalty that doesn't actually deter the action uh, because the penalty is below the profit margin right. you're making from behavior right uh, which is the the number one I think pro- or one of the main problems in this space but I guess this story illustrates so many of the problems I think that you know you capture so nicely you document so nicely but are really kind of widespread. One, um, companies that bring a product to market based on a weak evidence base that basically transfer the risk of R&D from the pre-market space and from investors to the public. And they put the burden on the public to pay for their R&D. And like this company says, we're using your money so we can investigate if this drug really helps. It's like, but that's what we're paying you for a drug that helps. So right. it's putting the cart in front of the horse. Right. Um, and I think we've seen that also with Exondis 51 and the Sarepta decision, because you have a company that brought uncontrolled data to bringing this Duchenne's muscular dystrophy mm-hmm. drug. And you have this quote from Janet Woodcock that says, if I don't approve this drug, this company is going to kind of go bankrupt and won't be able to study this product further. And that's not really the way I think the American drug regulatory system ought to be designed where we allow products onto the market that we don't know if they actually help or not so that the companies can recoup enough money so that they can test whether or not those products help or not. That's a very foolish way to run any sort of public regulation
1: scheme right right I and mean, I think this product is has you know QuestCore recognized kind of the gold here when they saw this this particular product with 20 some indications and this but only being used for like this this really niche area um, and yeah. they kind of you know it was a great opportunity for them that
0: that, that they could just market unfettered so right. then I think the next part it illustrates that's problematic is that companies are allowed to market incredibly aggressively their products, and they can even engage in this relationship that I think if you were in a different sector of the economy would blow your mind, that they're taking the person who's in charge of prescribing the product to a person, and a person who has a, who trusts this, this provider, and this provider in fact has a fiduciary interest to the patient's best interest. And they take that person and they can heavily lobby that person and actually pay that person money, which actually affects their behavior. Mm-hmm. And they meanwhile are supposed to have a fiduciary duty to the patient, and then they engage in actions that appear that the money is working, that the company's getting a five to one return on investment, and this is all considered not illegal and acceptable
1: in the current system. Right, right, I mean, in our study, I think the you know the median payment was pretty modest. I think it was a couple hundred dollars. But then you had uh, there two points, I guess. So um, when you looked at the high end, some of these people got tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in 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 payments uh, for various things. You know, so a lot of people have. Have pushed back on this notion is like well if they're just getting meals or whatever that's not you know that's not enough to influence people's behavior um, but I think that there is now pretty good evidence that even these I think even as low as like ten or fifteen dollar yeah. payments that are just basically food. Is enough to push people to you know, prescribe there's been, differently. Pr- yeah. Exactly, This Dudley
0: Adams paper and jamming. Exactly, no exa- such thing as a free lunch. Exactly, sort of. yeah.
1: exactly. So we know that you know, even though the payment levels for most of these people was probably modest, we also know that it probably it probably uh, pushed the needle on them to prescribe more. And and in this case, yeah. I mean, <laughs> or
0: in in many cases, this is dollars being spent to prescribe something that's really close to snake oil. I mean, not snake oil, pig pituitary oil, uh, uh, but a different form of snake oil, perhaps.
1: Right, the alternative here is, is meth prednisolone or prednisone, which causes, you know, even if you're giving it IV, you know, you're looking at maybe a hundred dollars with the administration fee and things like that. So it's, it's the, the comparator is- Pennies on the essentially, dollar. Essentially, yeah, yeah, free.
0: Now let's talk a little bit about your work in multiple sclerosis drugs. Um, I think listeners should know that, uh, I think multiple sclerosis is a field of medicine that's starting to behave a little bit like the oncology field. Um, that there's a handful of drugs coming to market, they're priced higher and higher and higher and higher, and we're seeing pricing that you know was hitherto unthinkable. And then there's also sort of unusual behavior among companies, say for instance, if a company were to know that a drug like rituximab was very efficacious in multiple sclerosis, then the company might realize that, well, rituximab is gonna be biosimilar 2016, 2017. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to push this product. Why don't we make an antibody that's very similar to rituximab, of course, but one for which we can get a full, fresh patent life on it. Maybe we'll call it ocrelizumab. And then let's run our trials in ocrelizumab and prove that that works so that we can get a lot of profit, period. And that is innovation. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the story of these uh, disease-modifying therapies for MS is really interesting in that, you know, when Ocrevus came on the market um, a year or so ago, um, it was really, you know, people it was priced like 30% less than kind of the other agents on the mar- all the so we published a paper several years ago that basically showed that pricing for the, list pricing for these agents has kind of accelerated up lockstep so for every whenever whenever one product would increase its price all the other products on the market would increase their price mm-hmm. you know pretty quickly thereafter and they've kind of just slowly accelerated or quickly accelerated up after about 2000 and- But no um, collusion, no collusion. Exactly, yeah, no, no,
0: no. no evidence. Just like the Mueller report, no <laughs> evidence of collusion. Okay, right. but they all went up lockstep together.
1: Maybe obstruction, but uh, yeah, no maybe, well,
0: well, we couldn't exclude that either. We could, yeah, but, but, but yeah, no collusion for sure.
1: Um, okay, so, so you've shown that. And so that was, you know, we published a paper that kind of brought that out and that was a new, I mean, a, the neurologists I've been working with, I was working with—I mean, they were acutely aware of this—but no one had like kind of put it all together in a, in a paper and kind of brought it to light in mm-hmm. a general sense. But um, <clears throat> and so when Acrevis came out, you know, they were lauded essentially for pricing this product. Uh, at about sixty five thousand dollars per year, which about the average at that time was about seventy five to eighty thousand dollars, and they're like, and so and these are
0: lifelong therapies taken for decades.
1: Yes, yes, there's no cure for MS, and these uh, need to be taken kind of indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the company kind of received a little pat on the back because they uh, price the drug um, lower than kind of most of the other agents. There's a couple of important things here, though. Uh, Ocrevus is infused. So the mechanism of payment um, for kind of physician offices, drugs, Part B, B is different than part, let's for Medicare, Part D or commercial or where you pick it up in the pharmacy, you know, the PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager, isn't involved as much, um, so it's unclear if you know the price parity between Ocuvite and the other DMTs is 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 different, or if they're receiving discounts, and and if that right. that sixty five thousand dollars is about the same what the uh, the other agents would add in the discounts, add, and like the that. rebates,
0: right? So the other agents may be having rebates that would actually make it comparable. And then the second perversity is Part B means that the doctor's office that's infusing it gets a little bit off the top. Typically, what sequester level, according to Medicare, it's what 4.5 percent or something like that. But some financial incentive for right. the office to select the most expensive agent.
1: Right, right. And then there's other peculiarities with Part B in terms of patients' cost-sharing amounts, and a lot of people have supplemental mm-hmm. insurance for Part B that you know, well, they won't have a out-of-pocket. Expense for Part B drugs that they receive versus if they have Part D, and they're um, you know have an, don't have any of their low income subsidies, and they're paying usually a twenty five or thirty percent co insurance. And so there's ins, you I know see. incentives for the patient to go on a Part Part B direction as I well. So see. yeah, um, it's 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 interesting. You know, we've seen in the last three years kind of a slowdown in the uh, annual increases for most of the uh, disease modifying therapies as well as in just in general and other classes of drugs. I think that there's been a lot of public, the public scrutiny has had the effect of slowing down the list price acceleration in the mm-hmm. last three years. Um, but um, you know, they're still going up, I would say, f- between five to eight percent per year.
0: But you're, and, and then your point about Ocralis or ocrelizumab was that it got a lot of credit for undercutting the competition in price. Mm-hmm. But the reasons why that might be overstated is, one, um, it may not be subject to rebates that the other ones are. Two, um, it uh, may gain traction because of some perverse incentives in the marketplace. And three, the thing that people aren't talking about, which is that it is an antibody that depletes B cells. Uh, it's a CD20 antibody. And we had a CD20 antibody, right. rituxin. And my understanding was there's phase two data that actually suggests that it might be, it's it's promising in MS. And, and then the company pivoted towards making a new antibody rather than pursuing rituxin for
1: this. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of neurologists who use Rituxan rituxan. For, yeah.
0: And what we need is a randomized controlled trial, rituxan or biosimilar rituxan versus ocralizumab, and then we'll see if it has any advantage over rituxan. Mm-hmm. And it may not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you find in, in your recent health affairs paper? You're plotting the annual growth rate here.
1: Yeah, so um, a lot of our early work was just uh, kind of looking at price changes and um, things like that. And so we just recently published a paper that we wanted to – describe kind of what the effects of that would be on a patient. You know, what how does a patient feel these price increases? Yeah. And so the two ways that, you know, we tried to describe were the kind of hassle factor for both patients and physicians and having to go through increasing kind of insurance company restrictions for expensive drugs. So we wanted to know, you know, did the number of prior authorizations increase during this period, um, when there is this really rapid growth in prices, um, and then two, you know, what do patients face in terms of out-of-pocket spending? So, you know, everyone kind of talks about the limitations of list prices, and you know, it doesn't really reflect the net price and the costs for the payer and things like that. But list price is important. Um, because it's r- really directly tied to coinsurance amounts that patients have to pay mm. um, at the pharmacy. Right. So these 10 to 15% increases in list prices that have been seen across in a variety of classes directly impact patients who uh, have coinsurance amounts. And so in, in Medicare Part D, the usual coinsurance amounts, well in our study we, looked, we purchased a bunch of uh, Part D formulary files which basically sh- kind of lay out kind of what prior authorizations are used and what people's coinsurance are and things like that. And so coinsurance for Part D during this period were between 25% and about 30%. Mm. So if you're paying $5,000 a month for the list price for a drug, you have a 25% coinsurance. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's you know $1,000 or more um, that you're paying out of pocket during that month when you're when your actual coinsurance is in, is in effect. And so Part D is also complicated in that it has all these different phases that people go through. So yeah, there's a deductible phase, there's the coverage phase when they would pay the coinsurance, then they go into the donut hole, which has been dynamically closing over the last uh, four or five years because of the Affordable Care Act and because of the most recently in last year in the bipartisan budget uh, agreement, which is, uh, closed it quicker. And then they go into catastrophic coverage periods. So there's all these different phases that an individual with Medicare would go through in their in their plan. And you know what we basically described is that individuals who just have kind of run-of-the-mill Medicare Part D and they're on one of these drugs, they're going to expect to pay out of pocket in an, in an average year about uh, I think it's you know six to seven thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. just out of pocket for the, you know this one drug. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of money for, yeah, for patients. For one drug. Yeah. Year after year after year,
0: indefinite. Dra- Correct. Then, draining their
1: savings. Right. So yeah. the first couple of months of their, you know, like in January, they would face, you know, several thousand dollars in out-of-pocket expenditures until they went into catastrophic coverage. And then they'd pay, you know, maybe three or four hundred dollars a month until December. Then they'd start all over again in, in January again and pay. I see. Couple thousand dollars out front, and then they get into catastrophic coverage, I see. and so repeated, not evenly distributed, so painful, no. but real pain for real people. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So, so yeah. So what we found is very high out-of-pocket costs that are directly linked to link uh, list prices, and we found that there's increasing prior authorizations and restrictions that patients have to, patients and providers have to deal with to get patient to get patients uh, the drugs that are going to be best for them. So MS is. You know, unique um, in some ways in that there's a lot of patient preference. I think more so than other classes uh, or other disease categories. In mm-hmm. that there's there's a, there's in injections, self-injections, there's oral therapies, mm-hmm. uh, there's infusions. They have their 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 efficacy and and adverse effect profile differ. And so all the guidelines, clinical guidelines for uh, in neurology for MS, both. Domestically and European are really kind of deferential to the neurologist and the patient to select an agent that you know they they feel is going to be a good match for their you know preferences essentially. So I guess one question I have and I don't know the answer to it are there idiosyncratic
0: reactions to one or the other? Do people really benefit more from one or the other? Uh, but it's hard to know because i doubt there's double blinded comparative effectiveness studies
1: yeah exactly the the comparative trials are very sparse there's there's a few out there yeah. and they you know there there's some differential in terms of effectiveness and some 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 drugs are um more, you know, have been shown to be more effective than the other, at reducing relapse rates, um, and they definitely have differing adverse effect profiles. But there's not a, a but ro- in
0: comparative effectiveness studies or cross trial
1: comparisons. No, there's some comparative, comparative effectiveness effective studies. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think the challenge. I think that listeners should kind of like, why is MS? I think a challenging space. Um, you know, anytime you have this kind of condition that's relapsing remitting, um, which is true for rheumatologic conditions or multiple sclerosis or you know a whole bunch of kind of conditions. Um, It is, uh, I think, very important to have blinding because people need to be, I mean, obviously, people go into treatment trials with this desire to feel better, and so the placebo effect can be strong. And similarly, people are, I mean, this is another space where people have been swindled by, you know, unscrupulous marketers who come into a space and they have some anecdotal reports of people doing better, like this guy, Paolo Gambini in his like liberation procedure what did he he's a, some guy who did like some upper vein stenting procedure that has nothing to do with anything and it's certainly not going to mm-hmm. help anyone with multiple sclerosis but he had quite a following and a lot of people swore by it um, and so there's just been this opportunity for people to prey upon it so I think that's the importance of controlled studies in this space blinded studies and when you feel as if one drug is better than another drug. One wonders what would happen if those were all in sort of a blinded blinded study, whether or not some of that just happens to be, you happen to get one drug when you were in a good phase of MS versus another drug in a bad phase of MS. And some of that might just be sort of um, kind of drawing a misleading conclusion from I think the misleading power of experience. Um, but you've done all this work in multiple sclerosis what is your takeaway from these kind of? I guess what would somebody say if they're a defender of these kind of pricing patterns? They'd say that were it not for these prices, you wouldn't have this kind of innovation in this space, um, and and you should be thankful that we're jacking up the price year after year so that you're getting access to these miracle drugs. Is that what they would say, or you know, what's kind kind of pushback you get?
1: Right, um, you know, the mark. I think the market in MS is is unique. Um, there are no Generic products out there at all, so it's purely companies that are kind of operating in in a monopolistic setting. Um, they're competing against each other, but the way they're they're competing is essentially you know new products come out at you know the same price as everything else. Um, Which is odd though, like one would say, why isn't that the availability
0: of several different options leading to competition on the basis of price? Right. But you don't see that.
1: Right, well, we have a couple papers under review right now um, that are looking, so Copaxone is an interesting example. Copaxone uh, went generic in 2015, and one company had kind of exclusive rights for the generic at Sandoz, and they put out a product called Glatopa in 2015. So there's one manufacturer, and so the price was only
0: eighty five percent of the full price. Exactly. That's yeah. I'm yeah. I'm yeah. It was, yeah. It was. Okay. Just, it, okay. it really had
1: no yeah. effect, kind of overall. And then, it's... and when you
0: factor in the price increase, the price of the generic in twenty sixteen is probably way higher than the price of the parent compound ten years ago when it came out of the market.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. So. You know, Teva, which manufactures Copaxone, you know, totally anticipated this, and they moved everyone, most everyone, who was taking uh, Copaxone twenty milligram to their they newly developed forty milligram three times a week formulation. That's better, right? <laughs> um, three times a week versus every day. So, um, you know, patients may obviously prefer that. So, um, but they moved a lot of their market share in the in the years. Previous to that, to the 40 milligram, to basically mitigate any sort of effect Glatopa would have, in our health affairs paper, if you look at the formulary data, uh, (laughs) Glatopa had like the uh, lowest rate of coverage. So you could tell that Teva was basically probably undercutting Glatopa on net price through some sort of rebating mechanism because like only 50 some percent of Part D plans were covering Glatopa. So basically. Um, It really didn't get a foothold, A, because it was only marginally less expensive than the branded product, and B, I think uh, they played rebate games to keep its uh, market share up. So you've alluded to,
0: like I think, a few strategies people forget about when it comes to these costly drugs. Uh, and for those out there who say, well, generics will save us or biosimilars will save us, what they don't recognize is we see this over and over again. For instance, rituximab, and in its prime and perhaps first indication, lymphoma, uh, there's been a huge effort on the, on behalf of the company to try to move people over to uh, obinutuzumab. Uh, And and where there are comparative studies, in some places they're totally null, there's no benefit. So it's been difficult to switch people in those cases. In the cases where there might be some benefit, Um, It's been on some surrogate endpoints. And one of the questions is, is it actually due to a better drug or the dosing? So they crank up the dose. They give the dose much higher than what we give rituxin. And people forget that the rituxin dose is historical artifact. It was kind of based on what they had when they were running a phase two many, many years ago. They didn't have any more drug or they might have dosed it higher. Um, and it wasn't based on MTD or anything like that. So companies can kind of create these comparative effectiveness quote unquote trials that give the illusion that the new drug is better, but they haven't really tested if the new compound is better compound than the old compound. Nevertheless, then they can engage in strategies like undercutting the price of the parent compound during the years both are branded to try to get people to switch over. And then eventually when the parent compound becomes generic, they can still undercut the price for a little bit. Uh, it's only until several generic or several biosimilars are enter the space that the price is really lower, but by then everyone has switched over. And I think we saw this with esomeprazole and omeprazole. Um, sort of the 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 enantiomer was sold mm-hmm. as a better
1: drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, know it's pretty common practice. Pretty common um, practice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the only small molecule agents in this category are the oral drugs, and those are in you know all three of them are in litigation with various and sundry generic companies to basically. Keep prolonging their patent uh, lives, and for the next for, uh, several years or in the foreseeable future, so um, there's no going to be going to be no generic relief uh, in the D, in the DMT field for MS uh, at least I think the next two or three years um, that I'm aware of. If a
0: policymaker came to you, having studied all these things you've studied, and of course there are many other studies we didn't get to talk about as much, but if a policymaker came to you and said what efforts do you think we could implement that would either help the situation or help you study the situation? um you know, because I think studying it is important to really kind of illuminate these issues, but or help the situation. and And let's say this policymaker said, "You know, carte blanche, you can do whatever you want. What are the kinds of things that I mean, what does this research make you think about in terms of like what is the solution here?
1: It's such a complicated, in some sense it's a complicated problem, but in some sense it's not a complicated problem. And I think the solutions, um, you know, because the the problem is the the high cost of prescription drugs and affordability and access to prescription drugs, which is not terribly complicated, but I think the regulatory and policy solutions to address that need to be varied and complicated. And so I think there needs to be kind of a multi-pronged, um, approach. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about transparency in the pharmaceutical benefits of manufacturer and I think there's been a lot of finger pointing from the manufacturer to the PBMs and I think that there's definitely some culpability on the PBM side. and um, But uh, I think the, the lion's share um, is on the, the, the manufacturer side in terms of just, you know, they're looking to increase revenue in every possible way that they can. You know, I think these transparency laws um, are, you know, they may be helpful. Um,
0: The so-called Sunshine Act and things that allow you to do the research. Right.
1: Um, Issues about getting, letting kind of, you know, I know there's been a lot of changes with respect to uh, uh, how Medicare Part D is going to work with rebates and um, essentially outlaw rebates in that program. that's it's right. really unclear yeah, what I will do. Yeah. Um, Here are some things that I think about from looking no. at your work.
0: Tell me what you think. I think the corticotropin story illustrates a few things. I mean, one, I think it shows very clearly that this world that some of these libertarians believe we can live in, where there is no FDA regulating efficacy. And in fact, there were some names floated as FDA commissioner a few years ago and they actually endorsed such a view. I think this shows why they're really off the mark you would get products like corticotropin that have 20 plus indications and which I think reasonable people who look at the evidence would say, you know what, I honestly don't know if this is any better than anything we're currently using in any of these indications. And for some indications where you have the best data, it's like no better. And for indications where you have no data, I'm like, well, I have no idea what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's like the lowest level of evidence possible. And what that does is that would just create a marketplace where people can just market whatever they want um, to whomever they want and aggressively using aggressive tactics, perhaps even uh, you know ethically dubious, but certainly perhaps even illegal tactics to get market share. So that's clearly a bad situation. Okay, so I guess one lesson I think is it stresses the need. The first thing I think about is, you know, it stresses the need, like, why we need an agency that demands efficacy, uh, because otherwise you end up with corticotropin. Mm-hmm. The second thing I think about is, I don't know, maybe uh, there ought to be a, and I think it, if it were in a different sector, there should be a ban against companies that sell pharmaceutical products or devices being able to pay Lucrative consulting fees to doctors who prescribe those products. I mean, it would be as if you found out that generals in the military um, were receiving payments from the Boeing and other aircraft manufacturers while simultaneously deciding whether or not federal dollars should be used to purchase those products. In fact, in the general situation, that's actually, I think, a, no, I guess they have a duty towards the troops to purchase the absolute best products. But if you found out the generals were purchasing really lousy fly-by-night Humvees while getting $100,000 in payments from some you know, manufacturer of Jeeps or whatever, mm-hmm. you would, I think, be outraged. And like, we should ban them. They should be purchasing this in an impartial way. Um, so I think that perhaps, you know, disclosure is great. It's a step forward because for many years we didn't have disclosure. We couldn't even do the papers like what you've done. But I think going forward, I mean, it's going to be seen as an untenable. It's not a solution. It just shines light on what the problem is. The other thing I think about in terms of your – the multiple sclerosis research is – I mean, I think this is a very tough situation to solve. Um, I mean, I think you clearly show the market is broken. When multiple competitors enter the same space and price does not fall but goes up lockstep, Mm -hmm. that is not a market. Um, There's something broken about that. I wonder if one of the ways in which it could be sorted out is if the FDA had some more evidence power, a comparative effectiveness statute. So instead of these drugs being tested against placebo, because my understanding is some of these are still placebo-controlled trials, bringing these products to market. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. though there are other drugs out there that we know work. Correct. Um, and you know the FDA should be able to crack the whip and say like we really need you to show that your new MS drug is better than or safer than all of the other drugs on the market. But I think sort of how to rein in the prices is a is a tough is a tough situation, and you need sort of be willing to try a lot of things, including allowing Medicare the ability to negotiate and the ability to restrict the formulary. So is one of the perversities of this marketplace that Medicare, they have to pay for all these drugs, or can Medicare cut some drugs from the formulary?
1: Well, I mean, Medicare through their Part D programs, they have some discretion to, I mean, some of these drugs were not covered by some of the... uh, Part D plans we looked at, um, so they have discretion. Medicaid, on the other hand, you know, for the most part, needs to cover as part of like the kind of the original rebate legislation, has to cover essentially every approved uh, medication in, in some sense. Um, so they do have Medicare Part D does have an, an, some discretion to um, in their Part D plans to restrict coverage, um, and these Part D plans, you know, are there's they're private plans that, you know, like Aetna and um, a lot of names that you've heard of that, you know, are pretty good about negotiating um, rebates and discounts and things like that. So, you know, the rebate controversy is, um, does play into this and um, some transparency around kind of these rebate dollars uh, might be helpful. At least it would be helpful for researchers. Um, Yeah. That's a common critique or like the universal critique of all these studies, essentially. You don't have net
0: prices. Yeah, Right. they keep saying
1: that, but uh, they
0: are opaque and purposely opaque. And I guess, I don't know what those people really want, a system where those net prices are never released and nobody ever does any research and the prices continue to climb or some sort of reasonable reforms on this topic. Okay, my last question yeah. for you: What are you working on these days, and what what's gotten you most excited now?
1: Hmm. Well, we haven't talked at all about. Um, I have some. I'm, I do work in substance use disorders, and um, I avoided kind of, it, didn't I? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a whole nother like. I think it's, can a t- of I it's mean, such a tough issue, and, and I
0: a, I'm not as knowledgeable as I wish I were, but yeah, um, um, but uh, it's it's such a tough issue. Yeah. So, yeah, what are you doing in substance abuse disorders
1: in this? Epidemic, um, we you find ourselves know, in. Um, there's a lot of uh, interest, including among myself and my, my co workers, on understanding some of the unintended uh, outcomes associated with um, a lot of the policies that have been enacted payer policies and kind of cultural changes, health system policies around prescribing of opioids. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of concerns about overly restrictive. Uh, Payer policies and health system guidelines are reducing access to the point for patients who are on chronic opioids uh, that, you know, A, that their pain isn't going to be well managed, B, that we're having, there's going to be increases in suicidality and C, perhaps patients will be moving to street-acquired opioids, which are you know, more dangerous, um, potentially contaminated with fentanyl. And so, um, right now, I'm kind of diligently working to understand and measure uh, how opioids are reduced in dose and kind of trying to capture that, mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and then the follow-up to that is, what is the effect of that on uh, kind of un- unintended outcomes such as suicide and transitions to heroin, which is hard to measure, but yeah. we're and we're trying to look at that. I guess the reason I, I kind of said it's such a hard
0: issue is, you know, on the, on the one hand, in terms of how we got to where we are today, that's clearly the byproduct of maybe not the unintended, but perhaps the intended action of a very broad policy and marketing efforts that have led to widespread prescription of opioids including this whole pain is the fifth vital sign mm-hmm. always make sure the pain pay, the pain level is falling people prescribing very large amount of opioids for elective surgery, very aggressive marketing which is continually coming to light from this OxyContin maker mm-hmm. Purdue Pharmaceuticals the family behind that that indus, that behind that company um, so you know a bunch of sort of blunt force, Maybe even diabolical tactics that led us to the situation we're in now. Okay, now we're in the situation we're in now, and people want to turn back the time, um, get things back to where they were, kind of rein in this widespread epidemic of opioid use. And again, we find that these sort of blunt force tools, you know, they might still have unintended consequences the other way, because, you know, at the end of the day, this is like performing surgery with a sword and not a scalpel. Um, It's very difficult. So that's why I, you know, I avoided it for a while. But no, I mean, I think that's why they think this issue is so tough. And I guess I would not doubt that you will find unintended consequences. Um, you know, I won't. I don't doubt that that's gonna that's that's the case. I guess the challenge I see in terms of the whole situation is how does one create? I think an evidence based agenda for solving the problem, which to me would mean that all of the efforts to solve the problem, they would ideally be performed with as much follow-up as possible, built into the, like, if there's a legislative effort to curb opioid use or get people off, they should build in follow-up, they should have stopping rules, you know, to make sure they're not going too far the other way, you're nodding your head. right? But yeah, I mean, I think that that's the challenge, is that this is, you know, a big cha- a big societal challenge that doesn't have an easy fix, and anyone who thinks there's an easy fix has never, You know, been in clinical medicine or you know anything like that because it's not so easy. Uh, What do you think? Right.
1: Yeah. No, I completely agree that these a lot of these tools, uh, policies, payer policies, health system policies are pretty blunt um, and they're not targeted enough to to really. You know, I think what what they need to do is is reduce the risk that we create new kind of. Individuals who have opioid use disorder through yeah. prescription opioid use, yes, but they can't be overly, you know, kind of affect the people who are have, you know, an opioid use disorder and are taking pre- chronic prescription uh, opioids. And those p- individuals need to be handled very carefully to make sure that they're uh, shunted into treatment where mm-hmm. pr- where uh, where um, uh, appropriate and um, cared for in a in a in an empathetic way so um and you know like payer tools and health system tools and laws are just not meant to they don't do that really well and so um i think that's like my biggest concern with um kind how, how aggressively uh, a lot of different payers have implemented you know dosing restrictions related to do- to like mmes per day or kind of chronic use or things like that and so it's, it's gonna be almost impossible to uh, kind of go back to where we were through those kind of tools without harming a lot of people. Um, and so just, you know, we're making sure that patients have access to treatment and um, we, they are uh, appropriately managed on a kind of, on a case by case basis.
0: Yeah, you can't, they, the solution cannot just be to wean everyone aggressively. That's just not right. a, uh, like it's unlikely that that would be successful. But I think that, you know, just as you talked about in your paper, that there was a return on investment, that for every dollar that was spent in marketing to doctors about corticotropin, those doctors were certain to prescribe at least, in in um, due, not due to that, but correlated with that that expenditure, the company was assured to receive five times that revenue per dollar spent back. Um, So they knew that that was the ROI. Now we've seen, you know, maybe a decade or more than 15 years of, I think, bad opioid policies, bad, you know, aggressive marketing, dubious tactics, it has created the situation we're in now. I wonder if one can, ca- you know, I'm sure that there was a return on investment once upon a time for Purdue Pharmaceutical, and I bet it was massive, that for every dollar they spent to lobby for this product, they're getting a lot of money back. And now, um, but, but society is paying even more now because I bet the economic and political and societal cost of trying to fix this situation uh, is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. If you add up the time of researchers and policy makers and all the unintended consequences and the legislative efforts and the the studying this and all the programs that have to be created and the infrastructure, I mean, it's a a scourge on society. Mm -hmm. So in exchange for like allowing a company to profit hand over fist for some short period of time, we pay so much money um, in societal spending at the time, and then we pay so much on the back end to try to fix this ship. Mm-hmm. And you know so I mean it, it, when, when when people when I hear people talk about like um, we ought to let companies be allowed to engage in marketing because this is a free capitalistic society. I think we forget that although companies should be free to do a lot of reasonable things, um, when companies engage in very extensive marketing efforts um they can cost everyone else a whole bunch of money and time and sorrow and misery
1: yeah yeah i mean the economic impact of this crisis is huge criminal justice uh all all acro- kind of all across the different sectors of society um yeah i agree <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess I uh, I want to thank you
0: for coming on this podcast and sharing with, with us, you know, some of your recent papers. I think um, listeners who are interested in, I think, drug prescribing and cost uh, would be good to PubMed you because you've done a lot of really great work over the last over the last at least five years that I've been following you closely, um, and uh, I'm glad to know that you're you're still out there doing this hard work. I can imagine that. You know, each one of these papers takes you a lot of time because you have to pair data, you have to kind of get the data to, to, to be usable, and that's not always easy. Um, and but it's important that somebody's doing this kind of research.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I love it, um, but it is. You're right. It is very time consuming. And like when I, you know, just finished up my class now, so um, tomorrow I'll have to get back at it. So. Uh but yeah, thank you for inviting me, and I l- enjoyed talking to you.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming. And I guess I'd just say the last thought was that, you know, we talked about how some of these policy measures are the blunt force tool, but I think teaching the next generation to be more thoughtful about evidence and marketing and cost, that's the scalpel. I mean, it's not gonna be able to solve all these problems, and we're still gonna need some blunt force tools, however imperfect, but I do think that when you can educate some generation of physicians and students in terms of thinking better about individual cases, uh, then you're sending out out a lot of good actors into the world, and maybe they can can do some good. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.